Welcome to BuildCast, a podcast brought to you by BCG Digital Ventures. My name is Vuk Drivkovic. I'm Product Management Director here at BCG DV in Berlin. And today I'm delighted to welcome uh, Alexandra Deschamps-Sunsinon. Alexandra has been a leading light in IoT scene for a while now, really driving a lot of thinking about the adoption of, of, of smart technologies, especially in domestic context. And that was a title of her book, Smarter Homes, How the Technology Will Change Your Home Life. Alexandra, welcome. Tell us a little bit about your background. You're a designer by training, correct? Yes, I studied industrial design first at the University of Montreal, and then I moved on to uh, interaction design in a master's degree that is no longer, but was in uh, Olivetti's hometown of Ivrea in northern Ivrea. Italy. So not uh, too far from where you are. Interesting. That's really fascinating. How has your perspective, coming very much from a design angle, helped you think about, first and foremost, challenges around the adoption of smart technologies, but more specifically, your recent thinking about innovation? Well, I think being a designer, being trained as a designer is a really interesting thing in the 21st century because you're participating in the formation of services that come and go, frankly, uh, whether because you're making a physical object that someone will use and then discard or you're making a you know digital service that will not be around in five years or will have changed fundamentally or be acquired by someone. So I think it shapes a particular mindset around how work is done, what the expectations can be around a project. And I do think that it builds up, uh, at least I know in myself, it has built up a lot of skepticism and a lot of critical thinking because you have seen things come and go. That's an interesting perspective. I find critical thinking a really, really interesting ingredient. And in, in my experience, it's something that uh, working in cross-functional teams, designers often bring to the table. What do you do to keep that perspective? I think it's a really interesting question because I do think that a designer is often not the initiator of a project. They are the recipient of either a contractual agreement, something's been sold to a client, something's already happening. And so in many circumstances, the designer gets to be there and moan about it <laughs> or see the other point of view or immediately have a critical stance because they weren't invited to the table from day one. Feeling like you're the, uh, the last contributor to a particular project is a very common perception in design. It's the perception of, ah, I should have been called earlier and uh, my perspective should have been taken in earlier. And I think that shapes habits and it shapes ways of thinking and ways of looking at things. Because when you're the fourth person to see an idea, maybe engineering has had a go, maybe devs have had a go, maybe someone else in the business has had some opinions, and then it might be thrown on the designer's table, then they'll see everybody else's contributions and then really come to it with a completely different set of eyes. But they can have that set of eyes because everybody's had a go already. I do think that that position and that constraint and that frustration sometimes makes that critical perspective. Is there a specific advice to us non-designers? If you could install one trait or one superpower that design have, what would you pick? I think the real superpower of design, I think it's very succinct. I don't think it's necessarily that business critical, but it's to think uh, what could go wrong. And it's not really just in terms of, you know, technically what could go wrong, but what if this was in the hands of someone with terrible ideas or someone who was looking to do something terrible? What would happen? 
I think being able to see these unforeseen consequences of a product is something that designers are naturally led to, but anybody can do. Um, And both of these perspectives have really helped me communicate to my clients and communicate to the people on my teams what we should be looking out for and what we should really be mitigating against. Maybe that's not an usual design practice, but I do find it helpful for me at least. It sounds like there is a lot of value in, in almost deliberately stretching concepts to the breaking point. Absolutely. I think it's taking the edges of the bell curve and not worrying so much about the middle of the bell curve, because if you can cater to extreme scenarios, you've probably covered the middle of the bell curve by extension of that. Talking about the curves, one curve that we often talk about is the adoption curve. You have been very much at the bottom slope of some of the very exciting technologies. And here I'm especially referring to your work in Internet of Things or smart objects. Do you feel that it's a a term that it's uh, losing a little bit of value given how broad it has become? I think it's interesting. Uh, IoT means something different for almost everyone who works in it. Uh, When people say to me, oh, I work in IoT, I sort of have to ask them to be more precise. But would I want them to be more specifically aligning themselves to, well, I make middleware software or I make wearable technology for people with anxiety? You know, would that not create boxes for people to stay in and then not collaborate together? I like IoT because it is so broad. So when you put together a meetup, you will get an engineer sat next to a doctor, sat next to an architect. And I think very few terms actually do that. The reason why I really got involved in that sector was because I understood that it could have a fundamental impact on the practice of design. Because you're no longer just talking about a physical product, you're talking about a set of services, you're talking about a longitudinal view of user experience, you're talking about services that can break when the object doesn't, and a whole bunch of things that are still really critical that people still haven't really fundamentally understood, even if the term is now 20 years old. So I look at this sector as having grown and there are more eyeballs on it, there are more practitioners, there are more corporations attempting to make products in that space, but the problems are still there to be resolved. And I think that's, you know, really interesting. One feeling that I have is the conversation has moved on from almost design-led conversation in, in smart objects, a lot of them in domestic concepts. Do you still feel that there is enough excitement on more consumer end of IoT and more like B2B and industrial end of it? How do you see that trade-off of where the field is going? I would actually put a third category there, which is a public good IoT. I think that there is still a lot to be done in the domestic realm, even though the domestic realm is very hard to crack because you are talking about people's private spaces. People are, I think, feeling extremely anxious about surveillance, even though they might have, you know, five different technology devices that have screens on them, so they sort of forget about them as being really technology. They have those in their homes, but they'll feel really anxious about putting a smart thermostat in their home. That space will always be more challenging than people anticipate. It makes for great press, it looks good in PR terms, but does it translate into billions of devices? Maybe not necessarily. The industrial space is completely different. The sales timelines are incredibly long. The idea that you can really make a dent in someone's income and revenue, and you can guarantee that, I don't know, installing sensors on every one of their machinery is absolutely going to be worth their investment. That's a space that's a lot more skeptical. 
And I've worked with agricultural clients. I've worked with insurance clients. And there's always a degree of, oh, I don't know, is this really worth the investment? Whereas the space that's still, I think, unexplored, which is very much future facing, is that public good aspect, whether we want our infrastructure to be connected enough to provide public good, to tell us about incoming flooding, to tell us about the results of climate change, fires, etc. That work is still to be done and is still a really nascent field. It's very hard to finance. Public institutions know that they have to think about them, but to make a technology investment is still something that, you know, public uh, institutions are really bad at. And so, yeah, these three areas of IoT, I think, are difficult in their own very specific ways. This isn't an area that I think is easy to get into fundamentally. I think people have that rose-tinted glasses that it's all very exciting and it's all going to be very quick and easy to do. It's quick and easy to prototype and it's incredibly cheap to prototype. But to really go through deployments that are stable, that are stable for years, where connectivity is stable, is really challenging. Your forthcoming book is, has a title, Creating a Culture of Innovation. What hides behind the title and what are the, some of the main directions that you're exploring in your new book? So I've worked as a consultant for the last 10 years, as well as a founder of Goodnight Lamp and organizer of the meetup. And I've worked predominantly for R&D clients and clients in major corporations around the world. And what I wanted to do with this book is sort of address what I think are some common tropes in the world of corporate innovation, some common practices. Many of them are physicalized. So they are about the way in which a business will treat its space in order to make people feel like innovation is happening in that space. They will treat people in a way to make that group feel like it's the innovation department, whether that's by the way in which people are named or the practices and the sort of rituals that they undertake. But I wanted to, you know, shine a light on the history behind all of these practices and uh, whether they actually are productive or not, and what the new landscape, I guess, of the last 10 years of digital work, what that has done to innovation practice. R&D in the 90s is absolutely not R&D today. And I think that has changed how people see innovation work. The digital revolution since Web 2.0 till today has also changed how people see innovation work. And I wanted to explore these ideas and this whole history of innovation practices and innovation rituals. You mentioned the spaces for innovation. It's certainly something that we at BCGDV in all of our centers pay a lot of attention to. Asking provocatively, to which extent it has become a bit of a cargo cult? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, the critical question I address in my book, which is how do you avoid mimicking other people's practices and developing your own, really? And I do think a lot of people are lack confidence around their own ability to create their own outcomes. And so they will very often champion other people. I see time and time again, hubs or labs that are fundamentally the showcasing of other people's innovation, simply as a way of saying to their clients, look, we know what new things mean or new products and new trends mean, and we've brought them in and we'll explain them to you, but they don't come from us. I think that's extremely common. Another aspect I address is the idea that to be different is also very uncomfortable for a corporate. Mm -hmm. To feel like you are stepping into a space of the unknown is more comfortable for a small startup because you kind of have no one to 
uh, look over your shoulder and go, oh, the other guy, I wonder what the other guy is doing. Whereas a corporate is always doing that, is always mitigating marketing risk and reputational risk. And I think that has an impact on what gets built. So whether it's incubators and accelerators and makerspaces, these are all spaces that corporates built in order to manage innovation in a very particular way, to put it in a room or to put it on a floor and to say it exists here, doesn't cost us very much, and we can just let it happen. We can even get someone else entirely to run it, and it'll make us look good, but not crazy enough that our clients will go away. And I think, you know, riding that, um, it's a fine line. It's a really fine line. Frankly, it sounds like you had a very good time writing this book. Do you believe there is already a topic emerging for your yet next endeavor there? There's a couple of things that I keep thinking about. And uh, one of them is the way in which we don't talk about collaboration and the history of specifically design. We think of the Bauhaus and we think of Picasso and we think of Le Corbusier as being these people who just acted on their own. And I'm actually very interested in the environments they were um, surrounded by, their peer group, the ones who were actually much better than them but failed catastrophically. And so that I would love to turn into a book. I think it would be one of those crazy 10-year-long projects, but that would be fun. And then another possible project around, um, a writing project around smart buildings. But that's also very much a maybe at the minute. And as the final question, how can corporates win the next decade of innovation? Firstly, keep a hold of your staff. If your turnover of staff is less than two years, you can't build good research and good creativity with that. The other aspect, I think, is look at the spaces that you have. Look at how you are managing people's conversations. Look at the opportunities that you have to bring colleagues together in meaningful, repeated ways so that they build an awareness of each other and a respect for each other. And then they can build ideas together. Before you build respect, you have to build an awareness and people too often stay at the awareness level. People will go past each other in large offices and see each other across the floor at a canteen, but they'll not have a conversation and not have enough conversations to then build trust and to then go, let's work on something together. Something's come across my desk. I think you might be interested. That whole story really has to be at the forefront of someone's mind uh, where they're thinking about innovation in their corporate environment. Thank you for listening. For more information about BCG Digital Ventures, find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram, and stay tuned for more episodes of Buildcast.